Welcome to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland. I'm Karen James. The U.S. Constitution declares that a person cannot be held in jail without due process. A person suffering with mental illness who is found by the court unable to aid and assist in their own defense cannot be held and punished in jail, but must receive mental health treatment and be restored to competency before prosecution can continue. Oregon is in violation of this basic right as many pretrial defendants in need of mental health care languish for months in our county jails. In 2022, federal judge Michael Mossman ordered that the state psychiatric hospital begin discharging patients under new restoration limits and reduce wait time for individuals in jails in need of mental health care. My guest is the Honorable Judge Nan Waller of the Multnomah County Circuit Court. Welcome, Judge Waller. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. Many people in need of mental health care are instead ending up in the criminal legal system. Yet Oregon lacks mental health services, programs, and housing. County sheriffs argue that the jails are not equipped to treat mental illness. The state is facing a lawsuit over this issue. The mental health workforce is in crisis. And some fear that these people released from the state psychiatric hospital under Judge Mossman's new order are dangerous. So Judge Waller, you are at the heart of all of this as the mental health court judge who manages the aid and assist docket for the court in the largest county in the state, Multnomah. How did we get to this point? I want to start off by explaining that I manage two different dockets. I manage mental health court, which is for people who have resolved their cases. It's a probation court and it's a treatment court. Everyone who comes into mental health court has had their charges resolved. Uh, usually by way of a plea, and then they there's an offer made in terms of entering and completing mental health court as part of the negotiation, uh, if that's how the case resolves. And that is a population that is has been found competent, or there's not been an issue of competency. The other docket that I manage is the aid and assist docket, and I'm going to use the word competency because there are different terms used for it, and the competency covers the concerns that we're talking about. And you are correct. The idea that people have the competency to proceed before the state can can proceed with criminal charges has been around for a very long time. It actually dates back to uh, mid-17th century England, when somebody who was accused, if they were refusing to answer uh, questions, then there would be a process for trying to determine whether they were just being obstinate or whether they were, in fact, mute. Over history's time, it has become what it is now. And then uh, the U.S. Supreme Court set out the due process requirements in State versus Dusky back in 1960. Uh, so it's, it is the idea of competency is something that is a cornerstone of the criminal justice system, that before we can proceed, we certainly have made some progress back in mid-17th century England the process of determining whether somebody was being obstinate or whether they were in fact mute was to continue to pile stones on their chest until they either spoke out, and in that case, they were being, the determination was they were being obstinate versus simply being mute. I'm sure there was some collateral damage of that process that uh, was very concerning. But it has evolved over the centuries to be an issue of, does the person understand what's going on in terms of the criminal process? Do they have the ability to work with their lawyer and to make decisions? 
And that is if they have a mental illness that prevents them from understanding, working with their lawyer and uh, making the kinds of decisions that need to be in a criminal case, then the criminal charges have to be paused while efforts competency occur. And the, the issues that Oregon is facing now are issues that across the country are Many, many states are still being, are still have issues in terms of the numbers of people. So this is not a unique to Oregon issue. And states are approaching uh, the issues in different ways. I served on the national task force to examine state courts' response to mental illness over the last two years. And the final report from that task force was uh, released at the end of last year. But there are recommendations in that about how do we look at the issues of competency and how do we uh, as a country, and how do states individually, what can courts do in terms of looking at how we address the increasing numbers of people who are being found incompetent in the criminal justice system. Um, and I bring that up because I think that it's not unique to Oregon. It's not that we're doing something uniquely wrong. There's no one kind of reason why we've gotten into the position that we are. I think there are lots of hypotheses. Um, there have been articles written. We certainly have seen across the country an increase in numbers of people in the criminal justice system who are found incompetent, whether that's an increase in, in mental illness, whether it's the lack of what we need in our communities to create a safety net so people don't come into the criminal justice system. In the first instance, there are theories that Dr. Bloom, who was a psychiatrist for many years in Oregon, wrote an article and did some research on the high the high standard, the high bar for uh, civil commitments in Oregon. And his theory was that that was leading to more cases in the competency pipeline. We certainly know that historically, when we look at what happened when President Kennedy had his vision for a transformation of the behavioral health system and the mental health system in this country, it began by closing the large institutions where people were housed often for years and years and years with nobody looking at what was happening to them. And then his idea was that there would be a network across the country of community mental health centers that would be the safety net for people who have significant mental health issues to get them what they need in the community. The first part of the plan happened over a period of, of decades and large institutions were closed. The second part of the plan, I think there has not, I'm not aware of any state that has fully brought that vision into being of getting a complete network of community mental health centers that act as the safety net for people. We've also seen across the country an increase in homelessness. Um, and you know, in Oregon, and I think in many other states, we've seen an incredible increase in access to methamphetamine. And methamphetamine is certainly a factor. And I've had many, many people who are coming in front of me who've told me that they use meth because they're homeless. They don't want to sleep at night because they're afraid of what may happen to them. So they use meth, which certainly doesn't help their mental health issues. They don't have medic access to medication. And we're in a position then where we have a lot of people who have significant mental health issues, who are homeless, and who are either self-medicating or using meth uh, in a way that is, you know, as a precaution against the dangers of living uh, out in the community unhoused. I think all of that, are those are probably all contributing factors. I think another factor that uh, I've begun to see research on is the issue of the level of loneliness in this country. Years ago, I went to hear a researcher from the Institute of Happiness in, in Norway 
uh, who talked about the increase in loneliness in the U.S. They they do a lot of research around the world on loneliness uh, and happiness. And that with the advent of smartphones, they began to see a, an increase in loneliness in this country, especially among young adults and adolescents. They didn't make the connection, but when you begin to think about um, how we, you know, the, the the casual ways that we interact with each other, the sense of community, we no longer, you know, go to a bank. We all do everything electronically. We uh, often don't pick up the phone. We text and and or and that that is can be very isolating for people. The people that I see, both in terms of my mental health court population and the aid and assist population, are often very lonely people. They burned a lot of of bridges in terms of their family relations, their community relationships, and they don't have a lot of connection. And I I think that there, we know that there are certain things that we all need as human beings. We need a sense of purpose. We need housing. We need social connection and relationships. And so I think all of the things that I've just gone over, probably spending more time than you wanted me to in asking that question, are contributors to the increase in the numbers of people who are in the criminal justice system, because it is an open door. There are oftentimes people can't get treatment in the community because there are access issues to treatment. They are considered too volatile, too agitated, so many things. And the door that is open is the criminal justice door. Uh, And so I think that everyone is trying hard not to have the inconsequential cases come in through the criminal justice store. But I think that there are certain things that we know that would be helpful in our community in order to help close the door a bit to the criminal justice system and get people what they need. An alternative to jail that is um, easy for people to be to navigate and have access to. We, a group of us from Oregon went to Arizona a year and a half ago, I think it was, to look at their crisis assessment and center and stabilization center where uh, they've made it very easy for law enforcement rather than dropping people off who are in a mental health crisis to drop them off at the intervention and um, the stabilization and assessment center. And so we've been looking, there's a group in, in Multnomah County and other parts of the state also who've been looking at, can we have an alternative to jail that will be just as easy for first responders to drop somebody off as it would be for jail? And so that's, I think, one opportunity. But we know that we absolutely do not have what we need in the community. And hearkening back to uh, President Kennedy's vision, we do not have the access for the population, especially for anybody who's been in the criminal justice system or is currently in the criminal justice system. There are many programs that have charge-based exclusions, or they look at the population and think, ah, these, you know, too, too agitated too potentially risky, too violent, all of the things that one can say, and we can't get people uh, into the level of treatment that they need. So I think that there are, I think we know what we need to do. The question is going to be, can we get there uh, in terms of uh, providing the safety net in the community in the first instance to prevent some people from ever getting into the criminal justice system? For those uh, who are having contact with first responders, can we provide an alternative to jail when it's appropriate. And there's some cases where the behavior is so serious that probably it may be that they end up in jail in the first instance. But can we figure out paths of diversion from jail? And then in terms of the aid and assist population, how are we going to make sure that people get the level of treatment that they need? 
in the first goal should be, can we safely get people treatment in the community? And that means that we need a range of community placement. Some people will need to go to a hospital to get stabilized because the level, the acuity of their symptoms is great. The public safety risks are, are significant. And so we need them to be someplace that is safe and secure. But we also need in the community, for those people who do not need a hospital level of care, uh, there are times when people need uh, at least initially to start off in, in a secure setting, someplace where they can't just walk out the door. Addiction is, you know, has a powerful draw for a lot of people. And we need to be able to at least stabilize people enough to the point where they're going to be able to function in a less restrictive setting, which is always going to be our goal. Can we get people to the place uh, where they are getting the treatment that they need, the support that they need? Restoration is a fairly limited. It's not the door to all mental health treatment. It is to restore people for the purposes of uh, the fact that they have criminal charges that are pending. So I think that in addition to addressing the issues of competency and the and the competency system and the fact that we are, um, you know, the hospital is over capacity, the community options are over capacity. We have people who we believe that we have a good fit for them in the community, but they're waiting lists. And so that's uh, where we need an increase of the options available. But we also know that we need generally, in order to keep people out of the criminal justice system, we need the full range of mental health and substance abuse treatment available in the community to meet people where they are. It can't be often for the people that I see. You can't say, well, you have an appointment in two weeks. Please show up for it when they have no housing. They don't have transportation. They don't have a way of keeping track. If we operate like that, and then the person fails to show up and people say, see, not really committed, instead of looking at us and saying, well, we didn't set this up. We didn't create a path of access that will allow people to get the treatment they need where they are when they need it. So I'm hoping that we can have that transformation. There have been some great articles. There was a New York Times editorial a few months ago about saying we know the path to get where we need to be. We need to go back to kind of that vision of community mental health centers that reach people where they are. And then I think we also need to change our, as a public, our, how we view mental illness. I work downtown at the courthouse and the numbers of times I've seen somebody in a mental health crisis walking down the street and people have their smartphones out and they're taking pictures because the person is, you know, babbling or, you know, talking to somebody who isn't there. That's not a compassionate approach to people with mental illness. And I look at, as I indicated before, that the people that I deal with are a very isolated group of people. They are lonely. They don't feel accepted. And I think that we need to look at mental illness and accept mental illness as part of just like any other, any other uh, physical problem, that it is something that some people suffer from. And we need to accept that. And we need to figure out ways of having people feel accepted by the community. There was a study done many years ago of first world countries and third world countries. And at that time they were looking at uh, what was then called axis one diagnosis. So major depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, and where were their better outcomes? I think that people were shocked to find that the better outcomes were in the third world country. And one of the one of the conclusions was, you know, when you truly have villages and you don't have places where you can kind of shut people out of sight, out of mind, people are accepted. 
that's part of being human, that that sense of that need for acceptance of who you are. Obviously, we want it safe for our communities, but I think that there are ways that we can both have people, provide people that sense of acceptance and keep with enough services and supports uh, across the whole continuum and keep it safe in our communities. And then when, you know, when somebody really does something, then we should have a compassionate approach to how we deal with uh, behavior that really is beyond the bounds that we need to continue to process through the criminal justice system. But we can do that in a way that is compassionate. Judge Waller, can you talk about some of the people who come before you and some of the innovative steps you've taken? Sure. I'll, um, you know, the, the people I see are often people who have significant mental illness uh, that is interfering with their ability to uh, work with their lawyer, understand the process, and and make the kinds of decisions that need to be made. Um, a number of years ago, you know, we sometimes would see uh, less serious charges coming through the competency system. And the case that really stands out is a, a man who had a delusion about the airport. Uh, every chance he got, he would go out to the airport and he would create a fuss and a public, it would be, you know, the airport's a busy place. People are trying to get to airplanes and the Port Authority police would remove him, bring him to the jail. And uh, he was found incompetent and eventually charges would be dismissed. If there had been an option other than jail, I think that everybody would have welcomed that. And because the criminal process was such the maximum period of time that somebody can be under the statute as it was before Judge Mossman's order, the maximum period of time that somebody on a criminal trespass could have been held in custody or at the state hospital was 30 days, probably not long enough to get most people um, restored. And so that I think that's a good example of when you look at, I mean, a there needed to be an alternative because clearly the airport needed to have the ability to function without somebody uh, creating a fuss, impeding uh, as people were trying to get to planes and things. But there needed to be an alternative than jail because we weren't going to get him through the restoration process. Eventually, he was civilly committed, but he was arrested a lot of times before we got to that point. I'm not seeing charges like criminal trespass coming on to the unless there are more serious charges that the person is also being charged with at this point, because people recognize, the DA's office recognizes, really, we don't have with 30 days restoration maximum, that's not sufficient. But we need an alternative, which is when I was talking about the idea of having an assessment and stabilization center, um, I think that that would be the ideal place to get somebody what they need, and then be able to stabilize them, knowing that we have the next step available. So housing, supportive housing. We need for some people who have significant long-term mental illness, it can't be that we do kind of the short-term fix and then we say, great, you know, you're, you've been restored, good luck. Or we can't, for this individual, uh, after he was committed, there needed to be long-term opportunities for him to continue to get the support. In my, the other side of my mental health job as a judge in mental health court, I look at, you know, people who, some people who are are saying, you know, gosh, we're, I'm not ready to, to graduate because there is that sense of acceptance, people feeling like a sense of belonging. I mean, some people want to um, get off of probation as quickly as possible, but there are people who also, uh, it provides some sense of purpose and some sense of coming and uh, being accepted, 
somebody who knows your name and is going to support you. And then, you know, if things aren't going well, say, well, here's some other options that we can try. In terms of the Judge Mossman, in looking at the overcapacity of the state hospital, Dr. Pinels, who's the neutral expert who was brought in by the court, recommended that Oregon look at the length of time of commitment to the state hospital as one way of freeing up beds in the state hospital. And so Judge Mossman, in his order from late summer, imposed those timelines that were recommended. So we went from a maximum of three years commitment on a felony charge to six months on a felony charge and a year for measure 11 charges and a maximum of 90 days for a class A misdemeanor. And we're in the process, we're getting notices now of people who are being discharged from the state hospital under the new timelines. There is still an obligation, I believe, in the statute because that was it was just the one section of the statute that was addressed, the length of commitment to the state hospital to attempt to restore people in the community. People are still at the end of those timelines if they haven't been found able and the notices that we're getting are all people who are still unable to aid and assist, uh, that we make efforts in the community to get them restored. And so we are scrambling to try to find our partners at the county, the community mental health providers are scrambling to find placements. And for people who are who were doing restoration in the community, you need housing. It would be hard for anyone to be to engage in restoration services who is unhoused who doesn't have access to mental health treatment, including medication, who uh, has too ready access to methamphetamine and no supports and treatment uh, to keep them from using. I, I think that that would be a very hard go. And that's what we're finding is that it's not just the placement, but it's the other things that when somebody is in the state hospital, they don't have access, presumably, controlled substances. They are provided their medication. They're in a therapeutic setting where people are saying, okay, it's time to take your medication. You know, they're being encouraged to do so. And so we need to do some, in the community, we need to replicate some of that the best that we can in order to give people half a chance to be able to uh, effectively engage. In the first instance, when people are found unable, you know, we there is a, a consultation that is done to see if we can get them placement in the community uh, with services and supports and restoration services being provided. So that's always the first goal. But as I indicated earlier, we're seeing that our placements in the community now have waiting lists. So we're holding people in custody, waiting for community placement. We're also, people are in jail waiting for placement still at the state hospital. The original Mink decision, Judge Penner wrote that as a matter of due process, people shouldn't be held waiting for transport to the state hospital for longer than seven days and allow people to languish in jail who have significant mental health needs and are unable for weeks and months is a violation of their due process. So the case was brought back when uh, the length of time as the numbers increased of people coming into the system, as the numbers increased, and the numbers of people found incompetent as cases increase, the numbers of people found incompetent went up kind of at a proportional rate, but it's just more people coming in. Um, then the, the wait times for transport to the state hospital uh, started to lengthen. And right now, 
anecdotally, um, I could probably look up on a dashboard to tell you exactly, but it looks like we're still about four weeks out, five weeks out. Uh, and of course, in the middle of all of this, we had the pandemic, which slowed down everything. Every community program reduced uh, its population in order to give people more space. The state hospital came up with an elaborate process for you know, bringing people in, making sure that they were uh, didn't have COVID, and then uh, and that all took you know took up took more beds, it took more time, um, and so we had many things coming together at once that really made the situation worse. And now we're trying to uh, dig out of it. And the legislature has put in a tremendous amount of money into the behavioral health system in the last several sessions. My hope is that we can make sure that, that is, some of that is designated specifically for the population in the criminal justice system so that we have uh, more placements available, um, that people can't simply be rejected across the board from community placements, that we figure out ways that we can um, safely keep people in communities, whether it's more support for programs or the level of staffing that, that people have. And of course, as you indicated, we're in the middle of a behavioral health workforce crisis. Uh, so, you know, even though there are placements that could have more beds, they can't because they don't have the staffing. So I, I you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we can see um, a clear path to creating the kind of community support system that we need won't solve all of the issues, but it will certainly go a long way to hopefully reduce the numbers of people who are getting uh, to the point where um, they are entering the criminal justice system. There was a case a while ago where the person was at end of jurisdiction. He had serious charges, but you know the district attorney's office uh, said that they didn't believe that there were any other options that were available, um, and the only option left was dismissal of the case. And so that does happen. But it would have been great if there were some for this very mentally ill person who had been institutionalized for two years, if there was some other warm handoff that could have been done to, even though the criminal justice system was you know, closing its door, uh, that could have been done. I mean, he turned to me and said, well, now what am I supposed to do? And to not have an answer to say to this person, I have no idea where you're going to stay tonight. You've been given medication for the past two years, which you know hasn't fully helped you, but you know, good luck. And if that's something that you want to continue to pursue, you're going to have to navigate that. That does not seem like a humane way of treating people. That there should be the ability to to have a plan. And it's not that people aren't trying, it's just that we don't have enough in order for that kind of warm handoff to be able to be made. And Judge, any thoughts about the Oregon legislature in 2023? You know, I'm going to be optimistic. I think that this is an area where the legislature has a great deal of interest. We have some great legislative leaders who are very interested in behavioral health issues. We have uh, Governor Kotek has indicated that homelessness and, and behavioral health are two of her top issues. Um, I believe that the city of Portland and Multnomah County uh, locally realize that these are issues that absolutely have to be addressed, that you know, our community is, is wanting a response uh, to what they are seeing. So I'm gonna be optimistic that we're gonna get there, but I think that it also takes every single person in the community to step up, both in terms of their compassion to those that they see, as well as their advocacy um, for those who are very vulnerable. And then I hope that we just uh, understand the need to 
both understand mental illness and embrace it as we do any other, anything else that people are affected by. When people have any kind of a physical health issue, we respond. If somebody has a heart attack, boy, are there people there. We don't have the same kind of response if it's a behavioral health issue. So I'm gonna be optimistic for the new year and uh, I hope that everyone else uh, joins together and, and really looks at how do we help this very vulnerable population and how do we empower them? People need to feel like they count. They have some humanity and dignity that is being respected. Judge Waller, thank you so much. Thank you.